All right, as we continue our study in the book of Judges, we are looking at a man named Gideon. We are at the last little bit of our study with Gideon particularly. Uh, next week we'll hear a little bit more about him in that we will see uh, his son and what, 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 what hat transpires in Judges chapter 9. But for today, we are beginning, uh, we'll, we're beginning the end of, of Gideon's life. And so we'll be in Judges chapter 8. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. And as they pass out Bibles, let me ask you this question. How do you handle conflict? How do you handle conflict? I want you to think about that, that theme uh, or that reality as we go through this entire sermon. Uh, it's important for us to know how we handle conflict, not just externally on the surface, how we deal with, with, with conflict, but how do we also deal internally at the heart level, at the soul level. It's important for us to, to see um, how we carry our, uh, our, our conflict, how we, uh, how, wh- what's going on inside of our own hearts. Uh, even when the conflict subsides. We're going to see Gideon encounter uh, much conflict today uh, with, di- with different people, um, all of them to which they're part of his family, a part of uh, God's people. And so he, he interacts with, with them. And so I want st- the overarching question to start is how do you handle conflict? We're going to look at Gideon, we're gonna look, and then we, I want you to examine yourself along the way. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, it says this, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, um, they're, they're, they're speaking to Gideon, what is this? What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What I have done is, is now in comparison with you. Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes of the harvest of Abizar? God has given you into your hand the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So let's real quick uh, look back on why they're angry, what's going on. Originally, uh, when God or you called Gideon to go to war against Midian, Midian had uh, oppressed God's people for seven years. God had raised up Gideon. And in doing so, Midian summon, or Gideon summons uh, a, a bunch of God's people, different tribes. Uh, the Ephraimites were not included in that. This is why they're upset. They're going, hey, why in the original muster, when you, when you gathered us all up together, why didn't you include us? Um, that's, their, that's their beef. Why didn't you include us at the beginning of the battle? Well, Gideon did include them just later on. When uh, the battle broke out um, and uh, people started to flee, he, he rallied the troops of, of Ephraim, and they then actually caught the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, which is mentioned here in our text. And so what's going on here is at the end of this battle, they've, 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 they've captured the princes of Midian, they've beheaded them, and they have this victory. The men of, of uh, Ephraim are now upset, they're frustrated that they weren't called to the original um, council for the initial battle. They wanted to be a part of the first battle. Here's the thing. If you remember, uh, who, who got to fight? Who got to fight? Only 300 men. It didn't matter like, if they showed up there or not. Like God said to only 300. And so uh, originally there was like 32,000. Uh, 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 there was thousands of men who, have, who had gathered. And God had said only 300. Only 300 men were going to go fight. So it really didn't matter uh, if the men of Ephraim were there or not. Uh, they could have been excluded at that point when God said only these 300. And so the, the point here I want us to see is that these men are, are, are jealous uh, and frustrated or discontent with uh, uh, Gideon's leadership in some way, shape, or form. Perhaps they feel uh, jealous, like, hey, we weren't, we weren't allowed to be a part of the first battle. Like, that's not fair. Uh, perhaps they are uh, uh, frustrated that... Um, uh, that Gideon may think less of them for some reason. Maybe, maybe he thinks that Gideon thought they're, they're cowards, and so he didn't include them. Who knows why uh, they're upset, really, but it, what's underlying is this need to be approved of and this need to be uh, uh, visible and the, the, this root of pride that's going on in the side and the heart of the Ephraimites, these men who are like, hey, why did, we don't like your plan, Gideon. Uh, we wish we were there uh, uh, on the front end. And so here's a le- there's a lesson to be learned here for anyone in leadership is that uh, Gideon, I mean, he had to call the shots. He had to call the shots um, and, and tell who's going to be in battle, drop the plan, listen to God. But he also has to be a man, if you call the shots, you take the shots. And so uh, if, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to be willing to take some criticism. Every leader will be criticized at some point in time, uh, whether right 
in the right or in the wrong. And so what we see is this great criticism uh, to this great leader, Gideon, after a great battle, and he, he, he's won. They've won. They've been victorious, and now people are upset. Ever been there where you've, you've, uh, you've led well, you, maybe you're in your job, your work, wherever you're at, and then uh, uh, people are upset. You're like, man, I thought, I thought we did really good. And then, you know, some people around you are just, not ups- are just upset. This is this moment for Gideon. And so it's important for us to see how he handles this. We're going to see how he handles it on the surface, and we're going to see how it manifests throughout the rest of our, our time here. The way he handles it here in the, in the opening verses is that he essentially says back to them, hey, what do I have in comparison to you? Like, I'm not, like, your tribe is better than my tribe. Ephraim's better than, than, than my tribe. Like, y'all get, y'all get better grapes and harvests. Like, we don't have much. We also know uh, in the past that Gideon has been known for viewing himself as the weakest clan, and the weakest tribe, and also the weakest among his tribe. He's like, no, 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 y'all are better. I'm weak. You're strong. I'm, I'm, you're, you're, you're big and tough. I'm not. That's what he essentially is telling them. Moreover, he tells them, hey, y'all got the victory. Y'all killed the two princes. Like, y'all, 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 y'all got them. Oreb and Zeb, y'all got them. We didn't. So, and I mean, we all should be on the same team, really happy that God won the war. But at the end of the day, like, you know, your land's better, your people are better, y'all are better. Like, you know, and, and maybe he's, he's being a little passive aggressive, maybe self-loathing. Um, but any, whatever he's doing, what happens is their anger is, uh, subsides against him. Like, okay, yeah, 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 you're right. We did get the, we did get the bad guys. Like, we, we're, we're better than you, Gideon. And so Gideon here, what we see is he's diplomatic in a way um, to, to, to ease the conflict. We're not, I'm not commending his strategy or, or any of that, but I just want to just notice that he go, he is, he's, he's wanting to alleviate the tension, right? Right now, this is Gideon's goal, to alleviate the tension and the conflict. And so let me ask you again, how do you handle conflict? Is you, are you, uh, are, do you, you want to avoid conflict? Do you want to, uh, uh, are, you, are you ruled by bitterness? Are you ruled by desire? What, what happens when conflict breaks out? Moreover, what happens after the quote-unquote conflict has resolved on the surface? If you're married, think about it this way. Uh, if you ever got into a fight with your spouse, and then y'all quote-unquote, uh, everything has been resolved, but internally, one of you, perhaps both of you, are still kind of angry. What's going, that's where I'm getting at. What's going on inside of you after the conflict stops on the surface? That's what we need to look at here with Gideon. The conflict on the surface has stopped, but what's going on inside of Gideon's heart? What we're going to see here is what this, this, this marks is really the beginning of the end of Gideon. What we find next is Gideon completely begins to unravel. He unra- unravels. Uh, verse 4, it says this, And then Gideon came to the Jordan, and crossed over. He and his 300 uh, men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So they're tired. They, they, he just got into this conflict with the Ephraimites. He's like, I still got work to do. What they were doing was uh, pursuing, and we're going to find out they're pursuing the kings of Midian. They, they, they've captured the prince, princes of Midian. Now they're pursuing the two kings of Midian. And so he and his 300 men are continuing to go. And so he said to the men of Succoth, uh, so now he, he, he arrives into this town, and he says, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zilmunna, uh, the kings of Midian. So Gideon is, hey, we, we, the war's not done. We've killed, we've captured and killed the princes. We've got to go after the kings of Midian. This isn't an uncommon thing to see in battle, uh, the battle to delay, and then uh, they're continuing to be fighting until the leaders of the ruling nations uh, have been subdued. So this is what we see playing out right here. They're tired, they're exhausted, they need provisions, they need food. So Gideon makes this request. Seems, seems good so far. Verse 6, and the officials of Succoth said, uh, are the hands of Ziba and Zilmuna already in your hands, or in your hand, that we should give you bread, give bread to your army? So they're saying, hey, you want us to feed you? Well, you haven't captured anybody yet. You're still, you still got work to do. It's likely that they're not willing to give them provisions here because uh, they're, they're unsure. I mean, there's only 300. We'll find out there's still a few thousand left of the, uh, of the Midianites. Uh, it, it's unsure that they're going to get a victory. Um, it's also likely that if they don't get the victory and they, uh, you know, they, they've given away all their food, that they're not going to have food later. Because what have we seen? What have we known? The hand of Midian continued to plunder God's people, to take from them. So they, they really don't have much. And so Gideon is like, hey, no, trust, trust us, trust God. He's going to provide. Um, but they, they, they won't give him any 
bread. Verse 7. So Gideon said. So this is, this is his response. Just imagine. Hey, I'm really hungry. Can you give me some food? Gideon says, well then, the Lord has given Ziba and Zilmuna into my hand, and I will flail your flesh. Like that's his response. Hey, I'm really hungry. Will you feed me? No. All right. I'm going to skin you like a cat. Like that's what his response was. With the thorns of the wilderness, with the briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel uh, answered him in the same way the men of Succoth uh, uh, answered. And the men of Penuel, he said to them, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So now he's issuing threats. This is what I'm saying. Gideon's not okay. Like the first conflict, all right, it looks good on the surface, right? Like, hey, man, I'm be- you're better than me. You're cool. You're cool. But he doesn't deal with his conflict. He doesn't deal with his anger. He doesn't deal with his resentment. Like they wanted, uh, the Ephraimites were led by pride, wanted their own glory, wanted to, uh, and so that's what soothed them. It soothed them to, to know that they killed the, the two princes of Midian. Now, it's not enough for Gideon now. It's like, no, I'm not going after the princes. I need the kings. I'm going to stop at nothing until I get the kings. And, and while, as I'm pursuing them, uh, I need some provision. Oh, you're not with me? You're not going to give me food? Then when I come back after getting my victory, I'm going to torture you. Like, just think about how quickly that escalated. It went from like, oh, no, last argument was, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong, everything's good on the surface. And now he's like, I'm going to kill you. Like, that's just not a normal response, right? Like, that, like he goes from zero to like 100, like, like he snaps, he snaps. And so what, what's happening here, and the, the shift here in the scene marks a shift not only in the war, but it also marks a shift in the character of Gideon. What we're seeing is now the unraveling, the implosion of Gideon. And so what we're going to see also in the, in the uh, upcoming scenes is that God is actually silent. We're not going to hear God speak uh, anymore to Gideon in regards to the mission. It's, it's noticeable. It's so noticeable that, that if you remember in, the, in the, the several chapters that have followed the life of Gideon, that, that God is always present. The angel of the Lord shows up and, and rescues him and, and calls him up, uh, and makes him strong for war. When Gideon is afraid, uh, he is comforted. He is, he's worshiping the presence of God, and in, in in a word from God is very uh, um, uh, noticeable in the entire life of Gideon uh, as the scriptures teach up until this moment. From here on out, God does not speak. It's noticeable. It's noticeable. And what we see is also noticeable that, that not only is God not speaking to Gideon, but Gideon is unraveling. There's a correlation here. It's a correlation here. We talk about it often, and, and I'm reminded of it, that, that uh, the, the scriptures are, are clear that the Holy Spirit flies in tandem with God's word. Like the Holy Spirit blesses God's word, will, and ways. When we deviate from God's word, will, and ways, we deviate from the Spirit's power, His presence. And what I don't mean is that when we deviate from God's word will and ways, you lose your salvation. What I mean is that the, 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 the presence and power, the anointing of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, is, is not seen any longer in the life of Gideon. And it, it, it's, it's devastating. It's devastating. Gideon is now deviating from God, his word, his will, his ways, and, and therefore he's for, forfeiting his presence and his power. What's going to be interesting here is it's going to be hard to tell is that God, he's still going to have military victory. He's still going to have military victory. And God's still going to get the glory for the victory. But what we're going to see is just the utter unraveling of Gideon. So it's important for us to see that, that, uh, th- that when we deviate from God's word, will, and ways, we might find uh, what, what may look like on the surface success. That doesn't mean we have the blessing of the Lord. Moreover, what we see also is that just because a problem was solved on the surface doesn't mean internally we're okay. Doesn't mean internally we're okay. And so Gideon is infuriated that, that, he, that they won't give them provisions, and so he threatens them to torture them publicly, shame them, harass them. And what I want us to see is that uh, it's obviously clear that Gideon's not okay. That kid's okay. We see like, hey, that dude's not okay. But for you, what is it? How do you know when you're not okay? Like when you're driving and the, you know, the gas light comes on, you know, like I got to get gas in X amount of time. For me, 
My, uh, I have to get gas when it says a quarter of a tank because my, my, my everything's messed up inside. Like the, when it says you're on E, like the light comes on, that means you have seconds. Like I, I need to, I can't get to the light. I know that. Some of you personally, your own life, you know that I can't get to the check engine light. I can't get to the, the, the need fuel light in my own life because when I get there, like it's too far gone for me. What is that for you? How do you know when you're not okay? Do you know? When you're not okay, emotionally, under the surface, not externally, but internally. When do you know that you are not okay? When for Gideon, we see he's clearly not okay. And I would like to, I, I would suggest also that back in, in the first three verses here, and that he was not okay then. When he first entered the conflict, he wasn't okay. He was tired, he was exhausted, he was hungry, he didn't want to deal with the problem, so he just pleased the people and moved on. Well, then he hit another conflict. He's going to hit it. He's going to hit more conflict along the way. He's still got a battle to go on. He is unraveling. So for you and I, when, when you, I want to say this, when you see strong bursts of emotions, it could be any emotion. Uh, it, could be, it could be tears. It could be anger. It could be bitterness, resentment. It could be uh, just thoughts of vengeance like we're gonna see, we're gonna see, we see here with Gideon. Or uh, it could be just bouts of sorrow that just feel overwhelming and not normal. When you feel strong emotions, when you feel strong emotions, those are often signs that things are not okay. I'm not talking about someone who feels strongly about everything. <laughs> what I'm saying is when, when you're abnormally feeling some sort of strong emotion, it's probably indicating Things are not okay. Like for me, this week, just in full honesty, transparency, there was a moment like this. God, the Holy Spirit, checked my heart on this. And, uh, and just in case I, he w- wasn't him, I asked Pastor Alex, hey, is it okay? Like I was so angry at something this week. I'm not even going to talk about what it was. I was so angry. I was, and I was like, man, I'm not, like I, I knew this was, this is not okay. Like I knew, and my check engine light came on, I'm like, I'm not okay. And so then I, I text Pastor Alex. I said, hey, I'm so angry about this. Here's what I'm going to say about this. And uh, he goes, don't say that. I hope you didn't hit sin. But he didn't, what I didn't tell him and I didn't say last service is that I actually already typed it up because he was taking too long to get back to me. And so I was like, I just, I'm going to send it anyway. Like, that's all right. If I'm on the phone and we're in a fight, like, I'm okay. Like, that's where I was at. I was ready. I knew what I was going to say was going to draw the sword. And I was just like, I think I'm justified. We're going to we're, we're go after it. Uh, he tells me uh, what I'm angry about is a misunderstanding of the entire situation that I totally misread it. And I was like, oh, so it's nothing like I thought. He's like, yeah, man, don't be an idiot. I was like, I was about to be, like 100% was. So I knew I wasn't okay. I could, there, was, there, was a, there was a strong emotion. And, and so then I was like, I got to check this. I gotta check this. This is why we need brothers in our corner, sisters in our corner, to, uh, to, to come alongside us and, and, and walk with us. Now, I don't know if they would have said yes to send it if what, what I thought was happening was true. I don't know. We'll never know. But I, didn't, I misread the situation and the circumstance. And God prompted me not to send it. He even, even when I was a fool and was going to do it anyway, he providentially hindered me from hitting sin before Pastor Alex could get back, talk me off the, the deep end, help me understand some context, some, some blind spots that I had, which led to repentance, which led to godly sorrow, which sobered me up and, and, and put me back on uh, the path. See, where there's smoke, there's fire. I was aware that there was smoke. I thought the fire was, was supposed to be let out to, to burn down the fields. No, Gideon feels this way. I felt that way. I was wrong. Gideon feels this way. He is wrong. I wasn't going to flail someone. Just saying. I need to confess right here. I'm not going <laughs> to. I wasn't this angry. What I want us to see here is that these strong bursts of emotions are often signs that we're not okay. Who do you have to run to to help check, walk with you, uh, show you your blind spots, help you understand uh, where, where there's sin in your life so that you can fight your sin, uh, walk upright in godliness? How, are you aware of, of, of when, when you're not okay? Are you even aware of that? That's the first place you got to start. Are you aware of when you are not okay? And so for Gideon, he's not aware. And uh, I want you and I to be aware when we are not okay because things can escalate really quickly and lead to ruin and misery. And this is what we see with Gideon. He continues, and next he's going to go now do what he says he's going to do, capture the kings, and now he's going to declare vengeance on his kinsmen. And so now Ziba and Z- uh, Zalmunna were in uh, Kar- Karkor um, with the army 
about 15,000 men, all of who were, who were left of the army of the people of the east. Uh, for there had been, they had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers to east of uh, Nobah and uh, Jogbeha and attacked the army, for they felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of, Me- kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he drew all their army into panic. So Gideon does what he says he's going to do. He's going to go out. He's going to take these kings. So there, there, there is some debate here about whether uh, God has, whether this is ordained by God to go after uh, the kings or not. I think that it, the, the most important thing is not necessarily whether he was, he was finishing the war or not. It's just how he handled himself in the pursuit of them. He, he was vindictive. He was, he was seeking vengeance. He was seeking glory for himself. Uh, he does recognize that God was going to give him into the, the hands. Uh, he, he was going to deliver these men into his hands. But then he said, right after he said that, God's going to deliver these men into your hands. And therefore, I'm going to f- flail you like a fish. Like, you know, like that's not like a, um, you know, you kind of question, is God calling you to this, buddy? <laughs> if that's your response. And so uh, the point is, he, he goes after these men. He captures them. Um, his men are hungry. They're tired. They're frustrated. They, they still got the victory. And now, which leads him to now go, okay, I got to go back and, and make do on my promise. See, I need you to know this. If you say something stupid, you don't always have to go back on it. Like you say, if you do this, uh, you know, he didn't have to go like, all right, well, I captured the king. I got to go back and, you know, you know, publicly shame them because I said it. Like he didn't have to, right? He doesn't have to at this moment. He does not have to. But he does. He's motivated here by vengeance. Vengeance on his own kinsmen. And it's not cool. It's not okay. Verse 13. Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle uh, by the ascent of Harry's. And he captured the young, a young man of Succoth and, uh, and questioned him. He wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, uh, the 77 men, and he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zelma, whom, uh, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give you bread for, uh, for your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught them a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He now is motivated by vengeance. He's gotten the victory. It should have been enough. Midian has been subdued. But that was not enough for Gideon. It's not enough for Gideon. He now wants to make a public scene and, and prove that he is who he says he is. He, he is the man. He, he is the strong man. He's not the one that the, the glory doesn't belong to the Ephraimites. It belongs to Gideon. Gideon is no longer the weak man. He's now the strong man. He's no longer the, the guy who is timid. He's the guy who is powerful. Y'all should fear me. You should fear Gideon. And so what does he do? He tr- seeks to incite fear. He needs to, quote, teach a lesson to his kinsmen by torturing them publicly. And then he killed the men of Penuel in, in the city. Then he goes and slaughters people. To what? Teach them a lesson. What's the lesson? Don't mess with Gideon. See how, the, see how he's totally imploded? He's gone from, God, whatever you want me to do, your glory. I'm a weak man. I'm a frail man. I need your strength. Uh, clothe me. Help me. Empower me. I'll, I'll obey you. I need you. To then going and getting victory. To now being questioned about his uh, his leadership being questioned about his decisions, which then he starts to unravel and, 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 and solves tension with avoiding conflict. Then he's still not okay. He enters into further conflict. Now he makes threats. He's, he continues to implode, and now he acts on those threats with violence and vengeance. And it's not over. It continues. Verse 18, we're going to see now his bitterness and vengeance and pride. They're still culminating, and they all come to the head in his desire to prove himself. And then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, these are the two kings of Midian who he captured. Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they, they answered, as you are, they are, uh, every one of them resembled the son of a, a king. 
So he's viewed to them now as, you know, a man of power. And he said, they are my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So now he's like doing this negotiation thing. If you would have saved them, I would have spared you. I have all this power. None of that was true. And, and he said to uh, Jether, this is his firstborn son, arise and kill them. But the young man did not draw a sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna, these two kings of Midian, they said to Gideon, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as a man is, so his strength. So now they're mocking him, his masculinity. And so Gideon rose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Bitterness, vengeance, pride, all culminating in this moment. He's got these two kings captured. Has them captured. He has the victory. He's already, you know, tortured his own kinsmen. And now he's sitting here. And in order to publicly shame now the enemy, what is he going to do? Have them beheaded by his young son, a boy. And so Gideon is, is becoming so twisted, right, at this point. He's gone from a godly man to just unraveling to, to this point where he has to now prove himself at every turn. He needs, he needs people to fear him. He needs to maintain power. He needs to, he, he, he's got to be the aggressor. He can't be seen as weak any longer because that was the old Gideon. Now, now he's in this, this new phase of life. And so what he does is he tells his son to publicly now humiliate these two men of Midian to send the message well, his son is too young and is terrified, which is a trait he got from his father, which is often true too. Like when you see, when you see your negative qualities as a parent manifest in your children, you don't, you're, not, you're not proud about that. You get more upset, right? Like it, it happens. You get more upset actually. You're like, no, never do that again because that looks like me and I hate that about me. This is this moment for Gideon. And as he's, he's in the, the emotional battle here, what happens? These two men mock him. They mock his masculinity. If you're a man, then do it yourself. Making this young boy do it. You should prove yourself. Gideon, then, after they respond and say, rise, fall upon yourself, you know, be a man about it. He then responds and then kills them. Why? Because he was motivated by need to prove himself. He was being mocked publicly. He can't have that happen. So he took out the men himself. Gideon has imploded, motivated by vengeance. Bitterness has uprooted all uh, the good that was in him, motivated by need for pride, approval of others. We see him as a man implode. Right now what we see is Gideon cares more about what other people think. He cares more about that. And that's actually what motivates him, right? And it's a, it's a powerful motivator. I want you to see this bitterness Anger, resentment, rage, pride, they're actually good motivators. They actually get stuff done. See, Gideon, right, he was a weak, frail man earlier in his life, did not do anything, did not get anything done, was empowered by God and the Holy Spirit, had a great victory. So we see victory with Gideon, empowered by God and the Holy Spirit. Then we see victory with Gideon, empowered by the flesh. Empowered by the flesh. On the surface, if you just look at the surface, both of them have victory. Both of them have military victory. Both of them have success. But we see the personal character of Gideon, obviously, is different in both type of men. Both have military success. Both give victory for God's people. But we see really two different types of men. We see a, a man who's contrite, aware of his weakness, seeks, relies on the power and presence of God. And then we see Gideon no longer relying on the power and presence of God. Relying on his, his, his pride, his arrogance, and his, his bitterness, his resentment, and he still gets stuff done. They still win with 300 men. They're still productive. I need you and I to see that bitterness, anger, resentment is a productive or productive fuel source. They will ruin you. They will ruin you. And we see the, the ruin of Gideon here. But bitterness, if harnessed, can be wielded. For productivity. I'm not for good, but for productivity. To accomplish something, to conquer something, to have dominion, to exercise. Christian men can sometimes get so wrapped up in proving their dad wrong from their, 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 the pains of their, of their father, their father wound, that they're successful on the surface, but inwardly they're scared, timid, phony men who on the surface look strong and brave. 
They st- but they're not. They're weak on the inside. They're cowards on the inside. So when someone calls them a coward, like the men of, of, of Midian here, these two kings, they lash out and have to prove themselves. I'm telling you, in our world today, men and women can be highly successful if they use their bitterness, their anger, their resentment as a fuel source. Look at the feminist movement. It's very popular. It, it, has, it is massively successful, ruled out of bitterness, hurt. There's a, most movements in our day and age that we look at that have a lot of steam socially and are, and are and up in front politically and on the news that you see are ruled, oftentimes led, by the fuel source of anger, bitterness, pride, vengeance. Successful fuel sources, but will rot and ruin and leave the Christian in decay. That's what we see with Gideon here. Oftentimes also, many in, in, in our day will be looking for what they might call, quote unquote, a breakthrough, or getting to the next season of their life, right? You're like, I, I, my, my season is to, to get a job, to, to get a house, or to, to, to establish myself in, in maybe the marketplace. Like, I'm, I, I, there, you have a goal, and you're like, I'm trying to get here. Once I get here, like, I'll, have, I'll have arrived. The problem is that if you, if you spend all your energy and all your time and development into to, to launching to whatever it is you're, you're pursuing, but yet have not put in the time and investment to cultivate godly character, it might lead to your implosion, which we see with Gideon. He doesn't cultivate character. And the weight of now his new responsibility in this new season and this new victory that the Lord God gave him, God really did give him the victory, crushed him. It crushed him. It crushed him. See, when we are, this is where we got to be reminded, our strong emotions must not just be pushed to the side. We must examine our own hearts, our own minds, our own motives, not to keep us from being productive. I want you to be very productive, empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. But we need to be self-aware enough to when we're relying on the fuel source of the spirit and then relying on the fuel source of the flesh. On the surface, they may look both productive. But internally, you'll start to see signs. You'll start to see, one, uh, when you're empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, it's like, dang, I didn't, I I feel like I'm not even doing this. God's doing it, right? Uh, Gideon is like, he's now getting victory over these two kings. Yeah, it looks like now exhaustion. It looks like uh, 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 anger, bouts of anger. His his emotional well-being and his character seem to unravel when he d- and he walks according to the spirit rather than when, or when he walks according to the flesh rather than when he walks according to the spirit. Same is true for you and I. I, I guarantee it. Notice in your life when you're living by the, the spirit. Guess what? The scriptures tell us when we, when we walk according to the spirit, we, we, we desire the things of the spirit. Gideon wasn't desiring the things of the spirit. Moreover, we produce what? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience. You should have been a little more patient with that guy. Uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you don't have any self-control, you're not walking by the Spirit. Whereas we see here with Gideon, when he's walking according to the flesh, it just ru- leads to his ruin and his misery. I want us to see what fuel source are we, are we, are we, uh, is leading us. Are we, are we aware of, of when we're walking in the Spirit and when we're walking in the flesh? Likely, you can see it manifest in other parts of your life. This is the stuff that only you can be aware of. I can, I can maybe, if I you know, am close to you in your life, figure that out for you, help you. But you have to do this work of self-identifying in your own life when you're okay and when you're not okay. When you're walking by the Spirit, when you're not walking by the Spirit. Get men, godly men, godly women around you to help you to figure some of these things out so you can walk by the Spirit and, and, and not desire the things of the flesh, uh, the things that don't please God. See, strong emotions, it's okay that you have them. I want you to know this. It's okay that you have strong emotions. The strong emotions require you to have a strong God, a strong Savior to cast them onto. Because you and I can't handle the, 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 the emotional uh, uh, strain of anger, of bitterness, of even self-loathing and pride. We can't handle the weight of these emotions. They must be cast off of our back onto the back of our Savior in order to be sustained. 
we have to remove them. And so what we must do when we're aware of, hey, we're like Gideon and we're, 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 we realize I'm not okay, we have to see that that is a moment for you to run to Jesus, to run to Jesus. That's the opportunity. I want you to see your, your, your strongest emotion, your most vile sin, perhaps, your thought life that you're like, man, I hope this one never gets played on public in the screen uh, of eternity ever. Like, I hope no one ever knows this one. Whenever, whenever you're aware of those things and you, you become aware of it, you have the opportunity to run to Jesus, processing your pain with Jesus, dealing with your emotions with Jesus, casting your cares on Jesus who will sustain you. I want you to see all of life is an invitation to run to Jesus. Ever gotten an invitation in the mail? Like, ah, I got an invite. I feel special. I should either RSVP yes or no. If I like the people, I'm really pumped, right? Yes. I need you to know this every time, all of life, that when you're aware of your sin, it's an invitation to Jesus. He's already dealt with your sin. Past, present, and future sin have been dealt with. You just became aware of it. The invitation is to run to him, to process your pain with Jesus. Imagine if Gideon would have processed the pain of that first encounter. Man, I'm a first-time leader. I made a decision, and now as soon as I made a decision, we got victory. But as soon as I got back home, like they're criticizing me online that you know i got i got emails i got i got uh the 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 newspaper is after me no one understands me no and and some of you you understand this your first time as a leader you you got out there and like all of a sudden you weren't ready for the criticism you wanted the glory of leadership but you didn't understand the criticism that accompanied with it and so by god's grace he, he sustained you lord willing and uh and, and it allowed you to to process that with him if not then today you begin that journey but imagine if, if, if Gideon would have had a, a group of, of godly men around him who he could have counseled with. Said, hey man, this, this, I just had this crazy conversation with my, my in-laws because that's essentially what they were. And I'm really hurt by this. Uh, I'm really angry by this. Actually, the next meeting I had, I, want, I said I was going to fillet them like a fish. Like, is that okay, guys? And they're like, no way. Their discipleship group thing. What did you say? You said that? Like, bro. Right? Godly men to walk with them. It's one thing to feel the, uh, the, the, the emotion of anger, bitterness, pride, resentment, whatever it may be. It's another thing to act on it. Gideon not only felt it, he acted on it. By God's grace, may we be the type of men and women in this church who follow Jesus and fight our sin in the context of community so that we don't have to act on the things, the, the, the flesh that rises up. We can kill the flesh lest it kill us. Gideon has unraveled, and as the leaders go, so does the nation. So next what we see is the unraveling of the nation of Israel themselves. Verse 22, uh, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. See, the people, they don't see any different. They saw the success with the 300 men. The first time, and then the second battle, they're like, hey, we don't really care. You won. We don't really care how you got it done. You're productive. I don't care if you were led by uh, the flesh or the spirit. Gideon, you got it done. We like you. We praise you. And Gideon then said to them, they're like, will you be our king, essentially? And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. This is like the redeemable moment for him. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request. This is where it goes bad again. Uh, Gideon said, let me make a request of you, every one of you, give me the earrings of his spoil. For they had earrings because they were Ishmaelites, the, the golden earrings. So the people that they had uh, plundered, they had um, these golden earrings. And verse 25, they answered, we will give them, we will willingly give them. And they spread their cloak, and every man threw in his earrings of the spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants of the, and the purple uh, garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around their necks and camels. And Gideon made an ephod and, and put it in the city of Orpha. And all of Israel whored after it there. And became, it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And they raised their hands no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. What we see here 
is as the nation is imploding and, and unraveling and as Gideon is imploding and unraveling, what we see is that God is still faithful. God's still faithful. He said he would deliver his people from the hand of Midian. Did he do that? Absolutely. Did he do it through the hand of Gideon like he said? Absolutely. He has done all he has promised, and therefore now they have rest for 40 years. God is faithful. What we see, though, is that God's people are not faithful. How do they steward God's great mercy and grace towards them? They squander it in idolatry. Gideon makes this ephod, which is this, uh, essentially think about a, a, a golden chest plate. That's essentially what it was. It, it, the priest would wear it in the Old Testament uh, as a garment of linen. Um, and and, and, and it, was, it, was, it was part of their, their garments for um, the duties of the priest. But Gideon makes this out of gold, and then he puts it enshrined in the city. And the people are like, that's super cool. That's our new idol. That's what we worship. And Gideon, it became a snare to Gideon. It, came, it became like a, something that he was known for. The image of Gideon was, was, it was not his face depicted, but it was his ephod, his victory. They could look at it and say, that's our guy. Gideon's pride kept getting stoked, and he kept getting uh, the, the glory that was due God's name. And so he had, he had not fashioned an image in his actual, uh, after his own likeness, but in, the, in, in his likeness in a way. And the people of, of God began to, it says, whore after it. Words, not mine. That's, that, that's what he says. And what we start to see here is that as God's people continue, we, he used to say forsake. The language keeps getting stronger. As you, as you look through the book of Judges, the langu- every time God's people rebel against him, it gets worse. Like their rebellion gets worse. And so the language we even see here begins to get stronger and worse. They are now whoring themselves after other idols to worship. And they became a, quote, snare, which is a trap to enslave them. Verse 29, uh, Jeroboam, that is, that is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. This continues to implode, right? He goes from being the godly man, one, one woman man, to now he's like following the ways of the culture. Hey, I'm not going to be your God, but y'all can kind of worship me. I have this, 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 this ephod enshrined in remembrance of me. And you know what? I'm going uh, to take as many women as I want because I'm the man. I'm arrogant. I'm proud. I'm Gideon. And he has many wives, has many, many children. And he has a concubine, verse 31 says, that was in Shechem, and also bore him a son named Abimelech. We're going to find out Abimelech is awful. We're going to meet him next week, and he, he is perhaps the worst. But Gideon's, he's following in Gideon's footsteps at this moment. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father at Orpha of the Abizarites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned away and whored after the Baals and made Baal Beareth their God. Gideon was their functional savior. He died, they get a new one. But they they take it from the gods of the culture, uh, and and Baal is their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to Jeroboam, that is uh, Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. They literally, Gideon dies, and they make, uh, they make a covenant. Baal Beareth means that um, Baal of covenant. So what they literally do is they make a covenant with Baal, and they enshrine him as their God, their nation's God. They're saying, we're not, no longer like the God of Abraham. Our nation doesn't submit to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they now, we now worship, Israel now worships Baal. It's not just that people in Israel worshiped Baal. It means that their national identity, they said, we want to be in sub- subject to Baal. And they made a covenant with him. And this covenant likely was, was public, sexual, and included child sacrifice. The nation unraveled. They made a covenant with Baal as their God. And what I want us to see before we get so um, wrapped up in this reality of like, man, you know what? This would never happen on my watch. Before we get to that moment, before we let our own pride and arrogance raise up, 
Let's move to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. I want you to know this, that we all, all of us, like Gideon, will be tempted. All of us. He says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No, temp- no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will uh, not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, our day, our, our nation has, uh, has uh, hoard itself out after the bales of our day and our age. The cycle keeps continuing. And it keeps getting worse. And we see it just like uh, in Judges, it keeps getting worse. In our day and age, it just keeps getting worse for God's people. Or, sorry, for our nation. And for God's people, what's our responsibility in our, our contending for the faith? We need, to be, we need to be aware of this reality that you and I will be tempted in similar ways that the culture is tempted around us. We must be aware that the temptation isn't just for the non-Christians. Actually, it's only a temptation for the Christians. They're not being tempted. They've already, non-Christians don't get tempted like we do. They've already succumbed. They've already been subdued. We are being tempted to follow the gods of our day and our age. See, at the end of uh, Judges 2 and the beginning of Judges 3, what God tells his people is, I'm no longer going to drive these nations out, but they're going to stay. They're going to stay and to test you. What did he say? He said they were going to test you to see if you will walk according to his word, will, and ways. So the nations, the pagan gods around us in our day and age, until Jesus returns, there will be some remnant of of pagan idolatry that exists in our world today until Jesus returns and is there to test us to see if we will walk according to God's ways or culture's ways. Will we obey the, the, the God of this world or will we obey the, 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 the scriptures? Will we walk according to Jesus or will we walk according to the demons? Will we, will we uh, obey um, uh, the, what the culture says is good or what God says is good? Will we make a covenant with the things of the world or with the one true and living God of the God of the new covenant, Jesus Christ himself? We will be tempted to deviate from God's word, will, and ways, and trust and worship and serve and obey anything and, and that is created other than him. We will be tempted. So if you don't think you will, take heed lest you fall. And if you understand this reality, if you're a Christian, you understand like, no, no, we, we, we will be tempted, but also we need to teach our children, our children's children, how to navigate this world when temptation to worship other gods will always be there. If that's you, then be encouraged that no temptation has overcome you that is common to man. The temptation Gideon experienced is not uncommon. The, the temptation God's people experienced after Gideon died is not uncommon. It's actually the most common thing. To be tempted to worship another, like our, our forefathers, our, our original, uh, Adam and Eve, they were tempted also to distrust God, to deconstruct who he was, and to disobey and rebel against him. See, we're sinners by nature and choice, meaning we, 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 our nature, meaning we inherited that rebellion from Adam. We're sinners by choice and that we really willingly continue to follow. The good news is that Jesus Christ steps in and rescues us. He's re- if you're a Christian, he's rescued you, he's redeemed you, and he's kept you here on planet earth in this city, in this day and age. But there are other gods and other, other, other uh, uh, beings that desire to be worshipped in various facets and, and ways. And so there's a real test for God's people, and there always will be, who will you be faithful to? Who will you follow? Who will you be- obey? Who will you worship? And so the, the temptations in every generation, uh, are, are, they're, they're common, but they manifest themselves differently. So if you think that there's more temptation today than there was, uh, uh, you know, in the days of Gideon, I don't believe you're accurate. Because Jesus tells us that there's no temptation that's not Paul tells us that there's no temptation that's not common and that God always provides a way out. God is faithful, just like God is faithful here with Gideon. God is faithful here in our day. He is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted, but will provide uh, uh, beyond your ability, but provide a way out, escape. So, so that why? So that you can endure it. He doesn't take you out of the temptation, but he gives you a way to escape the temptation so that you can endure it. What is the way of escape? His name's Jesus. 
His word, his will, and his ways are the path to escape and endure the temptation of our day and age, and every day and age. It's the exact, it's the exact idea God told his people in Judges 2 and 3. What was he, he said, I'm going to test you to see what, whether you will walk according to my word, will, and ways. That's the way of escape from the temptation of our day and age, to walk upright according to God's word, will, and ways. So what we're going to do in ending is I want to, one, encourage you. I want to encourage you to, if, if you are, are, are feeling like, man, you're a part of the fight, but you don't have any brothers or sisters to walk with you in this fight, I encourage you to join one of our community groups or discipleship groups. Get men and women, godly men and women, women around you to help you walk up for it. Follow Jesus, fight sin, and continue to follow Jesus on his mission. But then I also want to encourage you, as some of you may, may we see this at the very end, as it end, Judges 8 ends, it ends with uh, Gideon, his legacy is kind of totally marred. It says they did not show the steadfast love to, to Gideon in return for all the good he had done to Israel. It is almost as if his failings mark his last, or the, his last words, his, his remembrance. It's all he's remembered for is his failings. That's how, that's how it, it seems like in Judges 8 it ends. But it doesn't end that way. Hebrews 11. We're going to go a little bit longer today. I'm just going to let you know that. Just hold tight. This is important. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34, says that Gideon's remembered not for his sin. He's remembered for his faith. He's remembered for his faith. Verse 32 and 34 of Hebrews 11 says, Through faith, Gideon, though was made strong out of weakness, they came mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. That's what he's remembered for. That's God's last word. God, he wrote that. God gets the last word on your life. God gets the last word on Gideon's life. I want you to see, I want each one of us to run our, the race well. I want your best days to be always ahead of you. I want you to end well. I want it to get better. I want you to get more godly, more holy, walk upright, walk with the Lord more and more and more and more until either Jesus returns or you go to see him. That's what I want for each and every one of us. But for those maybe perhaps that you know that have gone before you uh, that maybe did not end well or like Gideon did not end well. We know we, we just read Gideon's life did not end well, correct? He, he led, he ended with like idolatry, uh, multiple wives, uh, pagan worship. It just was a complete utter implosion after some murder and some vengeance like it was a scandal his life and what god says at the very end uh, uh, uh towards the end of the the entire scripture he says that gideon was a man he was remembered for as a as a man of faith gideon along with a bunch of other you know guys who had great failings and so some of us you'll, you'll think about this if you think with me uh you, you'll, you'll be very reminded that the end of Gideon's life was completely awful. It was completely awful. Like tremendously. Vengeance, pride, arrogance, murder, beating people, idolatry. And Gideon is not remembered for a single one of those things. What about you? What is it that you cannot forget? You, like your identity is found in the sin that you've committed or what others think of you. And it's ruling you. It's ruling you. You're just, you're just filled with shame. You're filled with guilt. You're like, what will I be remembered for? You may even look at your life and you're like, man, if Jesus calls me home tonight, I'm going to be remembered for. In all your life now, you're going to be working to earn some sort of approval of others. Like Gideon, what am I going to be? I'm going to be known for being the best guy, the best husband, the best wife, the best worker. I'm, I, I want people to know how good I am. I'm pleading with you, if that's you, forsake that. It only leads to ruin and misery. God does not remember you based upon your sin. He does not remember you based on your pride. He doesn't remember you based on your shortcomings, your failing. He remembers you, remembers none of those. We're told the scriptures tell us that he cast our sin as far as the east is from the west, that he blots our, out our transgressions to where he remembers our sins no more. What we are seeing in the life of Gideon here in, in, in Hebrews 11 is the, the reality of that. We read he, uh, Judges 8 and we see we are aware of Gideon's sin. 
and his failings. And in, in Hebrews 11, we are marveling at the mercy and grace of Jesus. He's not remembered for his tremendous failing. He's not remembered for his idolatry. He's not remembered for his many wives. He's not remembered for his vengeance. He's not remembered for how he led a nation astray. He's remembered for his faith. And if you feel like that's scandalous, it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is scandalous news. Like, he doesn't deserve that. Gideon does not deserve that. Neither do you. Neither do I. We do not deserve the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus. See, it's, it's Gideon's faith that secures him. It's his faith. He's remembered for his faith. And I need you to know this, Christian, for eternity. Who cares what they remember you for here on earth? For eternity, you will be remembered, not for your failing and not for your sin, but for your faith in Jesus Christ. And you'll be rewarded for your faith in Jesus Christ with the presence of God, where there's fullness of joy, there's pleasure forevermore. I'm going to end with this. Don't worry. I have 11 verses. I'm just going to read them to you. But in light of what has been taught, in light of the marvelous, scandalous, mighty power of the gospel we see displayed in the forgiveness of, of Gideon's sin and the, in, in the remembrance of his faith, may I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel which I've preached to you, which you have received, and which you stand by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Past, present, future sins, all of them have been dealt with. Gideon's, mine, yours. It was done so in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus was buried, and he was raised on the third day, just like God said he would, in accordance with the scriptures. He's trustworthy. Moreover, he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. What this does is validates that Jesus is victorious. It validates he is alive, he is risen. It is proof that the check cleared, that salvation is offered. Verse 8, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul murdered Christians. That's his background. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. He says this to prove to you and I that Jesus can save the most vile sinners. He says this to prove that there's no sin that Jesus cannot forgive. Run to Jesus. Receive Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Stand in Jesus. And lastly, he says labor with Jesus. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. So Paul did work. He labored. He continued to push forward. But he says, by the grace of God, or by the grace of, it was, uh, but the grace of God was with me. Neither then it was I or they, we preached and so you believed. This is the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can save any sinner. No matter your sin, no matter your shortcoming, no matter your failing, Exchange your identity for a son, for daughter. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have died in our place for our sins, that you've risen victoriously, and that those of us who have faith in you, Jesus, are no longer remembered, no longer identified, no longer seen in light of our sin, our shortcomings, our fallenness, our pride, our anger, our vengeance, 
our bitterness, our shame. We might be disgusted in the things we've said, we've done, thought, things that have done to us. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ, you have died for all of it in our place for our sins. You've risen from the dead victorious to prove to us that it's really been washed away. It's really been dealt with. It's really been done. So may we live our lives laboring hard, but with a new identity as sons and daughters of God. May we labor forward with the power of the Holy Spirit, being reminded of whose we are and how you see us. No longer according to our sins, but righteous because of our faith. In Christ's name, amen.